So a quick heads up, in this episode, our guest Jane Humphreys had some issues in her internet connection, and we got cut off somewhat abruptly. So apologies for the truncated interview. All right, Gabe, should we get started? Let's get started. So today, uh, I, I'm very pleased to have uh, as our guest, Professor Jane Humphreys, who is an economic historian at All Souls College in Oxford, a uh, very eminent and important historian of the Industrial Revolution and it's the sort of demographic experiences of the Industrial Revolution. Would that be a fair characterization, Jane? Yeah, that's good. Uh, someone whose work has been very important for me. Uh, so anyway, welcome, Jane. Very good to have you. And today we will be discussing chapters 10 and 11 of The Making of the English Working Class, as well as whatever else comes back comes up in conversation. Gabriel, you asked me to reflect on um, The Making of the English Working Class. And I, in reflecting on it, I would like to come back at the end to think about how we might read it as a guide to the unmaking of the English working class in more recent times, um, because I found in places the book quite painful to read in terms of recent history, um, including, of course, COVID-19, but not exclusively so. Um, but reflecting on the book, um, I reread it and I was actually amazed by how well parts of it have worn. I did read it a few years ago um, because it was some anniversary of E.P. Thompson that I, I was invited to speak at that. But of course, things have moved on. History's moved on. Of course, history has took its after. I mean, at the time E.P. Thompson was writing, economic and social history was very privileged within history faculties. Students wanted to to take courses. They liked economic and social history. Um, and, you know, they were really keen on history from below, for example. Um, but then we had the cultural turn, we've had postmodernism, um, and, you know, class has been trumped by intersectionality. Very, it is really important. But um, that's meant the historians, I think, have basically lost interest to some extent in economic and social history. That might be changing a bit, and I might try and talk about that later. But. So that's left economic history in a difficult place because it's left economic history trying to talk to economists. And, um, you know, E.P. Thompson talks about the, 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 the scholarly scowl, um, what he thinks of as the ideologues greet the sentimentalists. Um, 
And of course, that's exactly how economists greet economic historians. This is really not um, as, as, as um, scholarly, as technically um, adept as, as economics. So it's very difficult to reach out to economists. Um, and yet that's really what economic historians have by and large been doing. Now, I think in very recent times, there's been signs that both economists and historians might actually be taking another look at economic and social history. And, you know, there are important reasons why this is so. For example, we had the financial crisis, the Great Recession. And so people were like, oh, yes, I want to know about other great, great recessions, financial crises. And for a while, there was a flurry of interest in the Great Depression, which was, wasn't at all like <laughs> the, the 2008 financial crisis. But, and, of course, economists said, yes, yes, we need to know about the history of the Great Depression. Uh, but that lasted about five minutes before their customary hubris took back over. And then, you know, they, they lost interest in economic history again. But... Um, but there have been other things. I mean, I do think the um, rise of populism has been of great interest to um, economists, and therefore they've tried to look at why that might be so. And there have been some really important interventions from scholars. I think Piketty's book is really of great importance. Um, really, without innocent of econometrics, although, and this is very important, full of numbers, um, yet it carries the most important um, message about inequality that really um, hit home. Um, it wasn't because, you know, he, he talks about Balzac or Jane Austen or something. It is a beautifully written book, but it's because the message is so clear. Um, a bit like Thompson's message was, you know, 60 years ago. So um, that's really, and now we've just recently also had other interventions, you know, um, particularly, of course, Deaton and Case, Case and Deaton, I should say, um, you know, with Deaths of Despair, which demands some kind of historical context too, I think. So I think there are reasons why both economists and historians might be coming back a little bit to economic history and interested in the kinds of issues um, that Thompson also wanted to talk about. So I don't know if that opens up um, the kinds of things you wanted to talk about. Well, continue what you were saying. When you, you were transitioning to talk about he himself, which I was going to prompt you for anyway. <laughs> well, he himself, you know, was caught up in the standard of living debate. It's the longest running debate in economic history. Um, he is absolutely excoriatingly brutal to some of the writers on this debate. He accuses those quantitative economic historians who are, in fact, defending um, capitalism as a uh, method of production, a mode of production and distribution. And he he criticizes them. He, he, he says they, they're reducing a discipline to propaganda. Um, he's, you know, very, very um, robust in his critique of people like Hartwell and Chambers um, and, the, and their critique of him. 
So he's caught up in this debate about what happened to living standards during the Industrial Revolution and whether you can actually quantify that and come up with some uh, clear um, quantitative um, account of what happens to well-being during industrialization. He says in the postscript that I read this afternoon that he thinks that chapter on standards was ungenerous. That's his word. Um, and he goes back over it and says, well, this should, you know, I really shouldn't, should have been more generous about this. And my, it's certainly very weak on demography, for example. Um, these are the kinds of things. But um, he's, he's still alive and well in the sense that we, we keep going round and round on this roundabout. This is a never-ending debate. It's of crucial importance because the extent to which capitalism delivered the goods and the speed with which working people benefited from the sacrifices you know, that they, they undertook, um, the speed with which capitalism delivered the goods, really um, is a testimony to the um, robustness, to the, to the value of, of, of capitalism as a system. And so he's right that really capitalism is on trial through these debates. And although we've left behind that round of the debates, we've moved on to other rounds with some new twists, some interesting twists. We've spread out. So now we don't just talk about real wages. We also talk about um, height, for example. We talk about um, health through, not just through mortality, as E.P. Thompson did, but through morbidity, through um, detail um, records of, of um, hospitals, clinics, you know, health institutions. And we look at the biological standard of living through modern measures like the BMI, um, you know, like, and we can look at particular diseases and so on and so forth. So we've, we've spread out and we're looking at other indicators of well-being. But we've also gone back in time. So we've connected the Industrial Revolution to both the early modern phase of economic history, um, where I think increasingly economic historians think there was some um, long-run growth as a result of things like the division of labor, things like um, the creation of workshops, um, and that, that growth was, in fact, a precursor of industrialization. So, and some economic historians, me included, have been tempted to go back even further and look at the Industrial Revolution within a very long-run context, going right back, in fact, to the Black Death. You know, here we have a massive pandemic, um, very topical, um, the Black Death, you know, kills, what, 40% of 50% of the English population. It's the nail in the coffin of feudalism. It creates a massive labor shortage, the golden age of the English peasantry. And according to some economic historians, that plays a role in, in creating England's peculiar economic history. And not just England, but 
the Northwest European um, in steaming ahead, leaving behind Southern Europe. Um, and um, something that, that we call the little divergence, whereby Northwest Europe grows faster and moves ahead of Spain and, um, of course, the Italian city-states, who were previously the forerunners. So the debates moved on, but it does tend to keep going around these same issues, and it definitely has the same ideological um, undertow. I've been called to my face a sentimentalist. <laughs> so and I'm happy to wear that badge. What caused you to be called a sentimentalist? What argument had you made that, that provoked that? Well, I think that I um, don't believe that the standard of living rose very dramatically in the short term. I do believe, alongside E.P. Thompson, that there were large groups in the population who um, suffered as a result of industrialization, um, not only children, but including children. And I uh, would like to emphasize um, their misery as a result of these events. The current um, mainstream view is that England was in fact a high wage economy on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, it was those high wages that promoted in a very simple, you know, relative costs of production story promoted mechanization. So high wages, cheap fuel, cheap capital, okay, we're tense mechanization. So inventors are motivated to invent, um, entrepreneurs are motivated to uh, put those inventions to work, and um, the results, the Industrial Revolution. So this is Robert Allen's very um, powerful, um, theoretically um, very attractive, um, and um, empirically quite, quite also um, well-supported um, account of industrialization. But to, to, to critique that story involves, again, looking at issues around were wages really high? How does that relate to mechanization? What were the motives of um, you know, those, the manufacturers in the north of England when they in introduced the spinning jenny or the, or the power loom? You know, what, were they really motivated by high wages? Or were they, as I would argue, were they really interested in substituting cheap women and children you know, for um, relatively expensive artisans? Um, so the very latest round of these arguments involves some of the same kinds of issues, but I think carried out with a panoramic view and looking also over our shoulders at the legacies of early modern growth. And I think also, and this is, I say this with great sadness, that we are also talking amongst ourselves. Um, so this is economists and economic historians debating with everybody on the same page with respect to quantification, with respect to econometrics, 
um, criticizing work because it's not um, sophisticated enough. Whereas, whereas in Thompson's day, you know, the, the sentimentalists versus the, um, the quantitator, the quantifiers, um, that was a, a, a kind of division of methodology as well. So, you know, he embraced literary sources as well as his, um, as well as, you know, all the detailed political sources that he uses. Can you talk a little bit about, in your own work, what sources, what types of sources you have used? Well, this is quite interesting because some people argue that although Thompson is the historian from below, he actually did not use many voices of ordinary people. He didn't, For I mean, I think Gabriel's referred to this. He didn't um, talk that much about women. There's some very interesting little nuggets about women, but he doesn't offer any views much about women's role in, in industrialization, in, in the actual production processes. And um, his discussion of children is really an attack on, on the quantifiers, it's, uh, um, rather than being an actual scholarship on child labor during the Industrial Revolution. It's an attack on Hot, which is a pretty pitiful piece of historical work. But so one of the things that, that I did with my child labor work was I tried to look at um, children's experiences. Of course, this is terribly treacherous because children's experiences are very often remembered children's experiences. They're what people say when they're grown-ups about their experiences as children. Although occasionally you can capture some child speaking. But um, I read, and there's a huge literature here, over 600 working men's life accounts. And I used those life accounts as if they were questionnaires in a modern economic and sociological survey. So I, my original intention was to do a quick and dirty analysis of this material looking at age at starting work and family context. So I could do a kind of supply side story about was numbers of siblings related to age at starting work, was whether the mother worked related to the age at starting work. It was going to be a kind of supply side account of children's work. But oh dear, I started to read the things and when you start to read them, you know, you really get captivated. Some of these, this work is absolutely um, riveting. And um, the book then started to balloon out. So it had a kind of quantitative account of what determined children's age at starting work during these years. But it also had an analysis of apprenticeship which was turned out to be a very interesting and important topic. And it also had um, an, a discussion of schooling. And it has lots and lots of material on family life. So in other words, this material really is history from below. It allows you to get into the nooks and crannies of working class experience, not simply, as Thompson was criticized for, looking at the politically active groups within the nascent working class. 
but looking at ordinary people. Now, of course, it's tricky because working class autobiographies are by and that's a selected sample. All the chartists, well, most of the chartist leaders wrote their autobiographies. Um, there's a whole set of autobiographies written by the first um, cohort of labor politicians. So you can't use these autobiographies as if they're a random sample, but they are more random. Um, and you can, of course, make them random by reweighting them in various ways. So um, in this way, I was able to um, look at the autobiographies as a kind of cross-section, carefully treated, of working-class experience, and look at them as a way of finding out about people. In fact, they, they insisted I did it. I just wanted to know, okay, when did you start work? You know, how many brothers and sisters did you have? What occupation was your father? And then they started to tell me about, you know, um, trying to cook frozen turnips for their siblings or, you know, their encounters with the poor law or, you know, what it was like to climb a chimney. And I'm afraid I was hooked. So the book is actually um, much bigger than it was originally intended. It took much longer as well. Um, but that's one of the kinds of sources, you know, that, that I think if you want to be a historian from below, you should use. And I've always tried to use um, primary sources. Um, one of my current projects has really been, here's where I'm a sentimentalist, has been a critique of the high-wage economy thesis with respect to hand spinners. And I've been doing this work with Ben Schneider, one of my grad students. And what we did was we actually went and collected hand spinners' wages, which is really very difficult to do because they're often paid piece rate. You don't know if they're working part-time or not. You have to work this out. You have to um, really work at the sources to try and uncover this kind of material. It's not like downloading, you know, the data that Elizabeth Gilboy had already put together from large-scale building projects in London, you know, which just about everybody uses when they want to talk about wages. Um, these are the wages of, of, of people who were barely noticed. Hand spinning was, and Thompson's wrong here, he says it's weavers, but hand spinners were the most numerous industrial employee employees right across Europe. So not just England, but right across Europe. Um, and they've been forgotten because they were women and they did it in their own homes, helped by children. And their livelihoods were demolished in the space of 15 years. And we've, you can find shelves of, of texts, you know, on coal miners um, and the destruction of their livelihoods or on the handling weavers but nothing on the hand spinners hardly, except, um, you know, a, a nice paper by Craig Muldrew um, and, um, and Bob Allen's um, argument that they were very highly paid, um, which is based on um, very fragmentary empirical evidence. So that's the kind of sources that I like to use. Can I ask you uh, to react to a little passage in Thompson in the Standards and Experiences chapter? I don't know what edition you have. This is on page 329 of this edition. He's quoting Dr. Turner Thackeray, 
uh, and he says he saw little to choose uh, between the worst domestic employments and the cotton mills. The children leaving the Manchester cotton mills appeared to him, quote, almost universally ill-looking, small, sickly, barefoot, and ill-clad. Many appeared to be no older than seven. The men, generally from 16 to 24 and none aged, were almost as pallid and thin as the children. The women were the most respectable in appearance. And then he continues, I saw, or thought I saw, a degenerate race, human beings stunted, enfeebled, and depraved, men and women that were not to be aged, children that were never to be healthy adults. It's a very striking passage, and one could, one could imagine how it might or might not be empirically borne out or qualified or complicated in some way. We have got some uh, data on things like the heights of factory children, which people have studied. It's very fragmentary and um, very difficult to come to solid conclusions about. Um, there's no doubt that the working conditions in some of the early mills was very unpleasant, that hours were unbelievably long. And one really very important thing, and Thompson doesn't dwell on this and should well have done, was that many of the early textile factories, and factories really a very important institutional innovation here, were in rural, isolated rural places because they were dependent upon water power. And since they were in isolated rural locations, they didn't have any labor. They had a problem getting labor. So they recruited children. And they recruited, in fact, children who were abandoned or orphaned or deserted, um, who'd washed up in very often the large metropolitan workhouses of Liverpool or London. So those children um, were shipped to work on some of the early spinning machinery, um, which could be worked by children, in fact. And the, the, there is an absolutely wonderful, um, preserved uh, early spinning mill in style outside Manchester, where the Greggs uh, ran, ran the factory, and they used pauper apprentices, and they used pauper apprentices right until the 1840s. And in some of my working class autobiographies that I was talking to Alex about, um, they, w there are several by children who experienced this transition themselves. They were recruited in a workhouse. Or in the case of Robert Collier, who goes and becomes a Methodist minister in, in the end, he remembers his father and his mother, who were both orphaned during the Napoleonic Wars. Their fathers were sailors in different ports, but sailors. And when they were orphaned, they were recruited by um, the poor law officials and um, transferred to work in northern textile mills. But um, Katrina Honeyman um, has a wonderful book where she actually documents this traffic in pauper apprentices from different parts of written into the textile areas, into the early factory districts. And um, similar things happened in other European countries. They happened in France, for example. Um, so, and, you know, we've got lots of good records on some of these early mills. So, for instance, um, 
we know that um, style operated on Christmas Day in 1796, I think it was, because it didn't fall on a Sunday. So this tells you, you know, how regimented these regimes were, how, um, you know, okay, you, had, you got your belly full of, you got some food for your belly, you, 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 you in, the, in the case of the Gregs, you had a reasonable living standard. But we have, you know, horror stories like Blinko's well-known account of, of going to work in a textile mill. And there are some even more horrible stories as well. And don't think this is just, you know, a passing phase that rapidly peters out. Because um, another one of my students, um, Caroline Withel, she's documented this going on right through the 19th century, although this kind of activity was supposedly banned in the, in the context of the new portal. So Thompson in the book talks a lot about the enclosures and the poor laws, um, both in this chapter, but also in earlier chapters. And I'd like to hear from you a little bit about the effect economically those both the enclosures and then the poor law in this late stage period had on working class families. Yes, I have worked on enclosures. I think Thompson would be on difficult ground, no pun intended here. Um, he'd be on difficult ground with enclosures. He acknowledges that the cottagers and the squatters did not have legal rights to land. Um, of course, many of the smallholders who did have legal rights to land and were given land lost out as a result because they couldn't afford the expenses of fencing, they couldn't afford the new ways of farming, in fact. But the cottagers and squatters who Thompson, of course, is, is, um, is sympathizing with they didn't have any legal rights to the land. And according to um, recent work by Lee Shaw Taylor in Cambridge, they also didn't really have, um, they weren't that numerous in terms of their actual enjoyment of um, the enclosure, um, their enjoyment of common property. Now, I'm not sure about this. I really think there's still work to be done on this. And of course, um, it's very easy, again, if you don't do history from below, it's very easy to dismiss the value of these kinds of rights as trivial. And I, of course, this is one of the debates between E.P. Thompson and Chambers, because Chambers describes the commons as a thin and squalid curtain. You know, it was a thin and squalid curtain anyway, so who cares if it was ripped away in the enclosure movement? But, um, of course, gathering, um, when you read autobiographies by both men and women, gathering is a very important activity. Being able to range across the countryside and, you know, gather various things. You gather, of course, fruit in the autumn, blackberries. You can gather all kinds of things that we've lost track of, which were treated as pot herbs and eaten, you know, along with very good sources of vitamin C, by the way, and the B vitamins. Um, this is really quite important substitutes. Plus, being able to cross a field to get to work sooner rather than walk around some long-winded lane, you know, to get to work. Um, all of this is really um, significant. And in terms of, you know, Thompson's arguments about sense of loss, 
this is really a very powerful thing, I think. And I think Thompson's entirely correct when he talks about, you know, the, the nostalgia for owning landed property or having access to landed property. And I think this does continue as Thompson describes it. So it may not, here of course, I'm, I'm now being a fully fledged sentimentalist because I'm saying materially, it may not have actually been that important by the time that at the height of parliamentary enclosure, but that it was very important in a symbolic sense. And I think at the margins, it was very important um, materially. And in my work on enclosures, I actually showed too that it was women who mobilized this kind of common property by and large. And so it provides a resource that can be combined with women's um, spare labor time. And of course, that's very important as women become underemployed in, in rural areas um, in, in, the, uh, 18, in, the, in the late 18th century. Um, the poor law, well, the poor law is a very significant English institution. Um, it um, arrives around the same time as, you know, the attempts to, to um, control the working class after the, after the Black Death, when, when um, workers are relatively scarce. And, um, and in, the, in the vigorous Tudor legislation against vagrancy and so on. And, and then, of course, with the, with the restoration, uh, sorry, with the reformation and the um, abolition of many charitable outlets, the poor law really is put in place under Elizabeth. This is where the sound cut out. Jane went on to explain to us that the poor law played a very important role, as Thompson argues, because it functioned something like an insurance system for the poor. It often transferred income in quite progressive ways. And despite what critics such as Adam Smith said at the time, in fact, we now believe it allowed for the transfer of labor from agriculture into manufacturing and services. However, the increase in population and rural dif difficulties during the Napoleonic Wars led to a huge increase in the budget for poor relief, which caused the state to investigate and reform the system in regressive ways. Okay, now back to our conversation. <laughs> okay, that was great. Um... She was wonderful. I feel like she did justice to chapter 10 for the most part. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in this section? Well, the only dimension I was going to ask her about before we uh, kind of lost her to technical difficulties was housing, which is the other piece of standard of living that Thompson discusses in this chapter. Um, you know, the physical, the built environment of the, of the working class in this period you know, as with all dimensions of standard of living, Thompson is very eager to say that it's 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 quite dire. Um, on 319, he writes, This deterioration of the urban environment strikes us today, as it struck many contemporaries, as one of the most disastrous of the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. Whether viewed in aesthetic terms, in terms of community amenities, or in terms of sanitation and density of population. Moreover, it took place most markedly in some of the high-wage areas where, quote, optimistic evidence as to improving standards is most well-based. Common sense would suggest that we must take both kinds of evidence together, but in fact, various arguments and mitigation have been offered, uh, which he kind of then engages with. But uh, basically, uh, you know, he he is arguing in this, in this section that 
people are living in extremely exploitative and rundown uh, built environment. I don't know if, what the new, you know, I don't know what Jane would say about that or what economic historians would say about that, but uh, it certainly, you know, was striking in a moment today when I feel like working class formation is so caught up with the housing question again. There's a rent strike that occurred at one point here. Did you notice that? Yeah. Where? What page is that? Oh, it's 320. In the 1820s, when many Lancashire weavers went on rent strike, it was said that some owners of cottage property were thrown on the poor rate. In the slums of the great towns, publicans and small shopkeepers were among those often quoted as owners of the worst, quote, folds or human warrens of crumbling mortar. But none of this mitigates the actual conditions by one job. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, sure, landlords are poor, but that's not a reason to feel bad for them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this could have been written today. Interesting. In New York, there's been, for listeners who are not in the United States, there's, especially in New York City, there's been a huge um, debate because something like one third of renters are not paying their rent right now in the city um, because they've all been unemployed. Um, and of course, small landlords are now saying, um, well, this is unfair to me. I'm reliant on your income, um, which isn't that funny how that works. Um, yeah, I mean, he goes through this whole section. He's talking about who's responsible and who's not and that it doesn't actually matter. Um, on 321, he says, Finally, it is suggested with tedious repetition that the slums, the stinking rivers, the spoilation of nature and the architectural horrors may all be forgiven because all happens so fast, so haphazardly, under intense population pressure, without premeditation and without prior experience. Quote, it was ignorance rather than avarice that was often the cause of misery. Um, I think this is, yeah, in line with what you're saying is Thompson sort of saying, sure, you can't blame any one particular person. And yet the blame can still lie with the Industrial Revolution and the, the makers of it. It's like that passage in the beginning of The Grapes of Wrath. In the, in the beginning of The Grapes of Wrath, um, you know, they're in Oklahoma and... Uh, the bank agent or whoever is coming through to foreclose on everyone's farms and all of the foreclosed far one of the foreclosed farmers is they're kind of gathering to you know share their anger and upset about about the foreclosures one of them says uh why don't we just shoot the agent um and then there's a discussion of well you can't it doesn't really matter to shoot the agent because they'll just send another agent he's not the person who's making this happen uh and then you know, as they talk about it they kind of or Steinbeck leads you to the conclusion that there's no person you can shoot to resolve this problem. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of impersonal face of this form of domination. Yeah. Okay, chapter 11, the transforming power of the cross. Yes. That's definitely how I think of the cross in my life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see, where should we start with this? Um, I found this chapter somewhat disturbing. Yeah, I mean... You know, here Thompson, uh, I mean, one, there's a kind of appearance of, like, Freud and the Frankfurt School a little bit in this chapter. He that, quotes Eric Fromm, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was sort of surprised by. And, you know, just in general, Thompson's concession here, I don't know, maybe concession is not the right word for it, but acknowledgement here of um, contradictions in consciousness. Uh, I find it quite powerful, actually, right, that um, social conflict doesn't pit people against each other who are each internally coherent and of one mind, 
right? But that actually it, it has it has interior uh, processes and works itself out in conflicts that play out inside of individuals as well as between them. Um, our old friend Methodism, and to return to our old friend Methodism, which now is bad, right? Methodism was kind of mixed in the 1790s, but now it's bad. Well, it still has some mix, but it's mostly bad. This institutional, yeah, okay. <laughs> the institutional forces of Methodism are bad, I would say, is Thompson's yeah. message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, I, so he raises an interesting question in this chapter, which is, how does Methodism succeed in being both the religion of the mill owner and of the worker, um, which I think is an interesting point. Um, he sort of describes, uses a lot of evidence to show that it had made real sort of um, inroads into the working class communities in the around these factories. Um, so it's not just the sort of bourgeois religion, um, but actually manages to capture both of these things and speak to both the message that your riches may be evidence of your um, being saved, but also you need to labor um, and submit to such labor um, as is required of you um, in order to enter, you know, heaven. You know. (laughs) (laughs) I hear, you heard of this. You heard of this place, right? (laughs) Yeah. uh, All right, on 356, uh, he says... This is what you're referring to, I think. How is it possible for Methodism to perform with such remarkable vigor, this double service? And this is the contradiction that the chapter is about. Uh, As it intersects, it seems to me in particular, with um, the question of time and work discipline, which is one of Thompson's major themes in general, right? That Methodism becomes the kind of ideology of uh, time and work discipline. Right. And so why is that? What does Methodism actually advocate, I think, for our fellow readers who are not so clear on Methodism? Yeah, well, you know, I think, first of all, uh, Thompson wants to establish that um, the relationship, the employment relationship on its own, uh, he says on 361, could never secure, quote, zealous services. The employer who neglected moral considerations and was himself, quote, a stranger to the self-denying graces of the gospel, knows himself to be entitled to nothing but eye service, and will therefore exercise the most irksome vigilance, but in vain, to prevent his being overreached by his operatives, the whole of whom, by natural instinct, as it were, conspire against such a master. Whatever pains he may take, he can never command superior workmanship. It is, therefore, excessively the interest of every mill owner to organize his moral machinery on equally sound principles with his mechanical, for otherwise he will never command the steady hands, watchful eyes, and prompt cooperation, essential to excellence of product. There is, in fact, no case to which the gospel truth, godliness is great gain, is more applicable than to the administration of an extensive factory. So he says here, the argument is complete. The factory system demands a transformation of human nature, the working paroxysms, of the artisan or outworker must be methodized. I'm sure that's not a accidental use of the term methodized. Yes. Until the man is adapted to the discipline of the machine. But then, as you as you were asking, he asks, how are these disciplinary virtues to be inculcated in those whose godliness is unlikely to bring any temporal gain? And the answer that the Methodists of the time give is, as he writes in as follows, work must be undertaken, quote, as a pure act of virtue, inspired by the love of a transcendent being operating on our will and affections. Um, and then he has a big block quote um, of from 
what book is this? The the Yuri um, that he's quoting from. It's like the manufacturer's uh, sort of guide. Yeah, uh, he's one of the main. If you read Capital, he's one of the main people who who Marx is always kind of mocking and criticizing. Right, right. Um, so the quote from that he gives here is, "Where then from that author? Where then shall mankind find this transforming power in the cross of Christ? It is the sacrifice which removes the guilt of sin." It is the motive which removes love of sin. It mortifies sin by showing its turpitude to be indelible except by such an awful expiation. Going on and on, and this is written as, you know, this sort of from a manufacturer's perspective about how to deal with your own workers. Um, And so uh, Thompson writes after this quote, Yuri then is the Richard Baxter of Cottonopolis. But we may descend at this point from his transcendental heights to consider more briefly mundane matters of theology. Um, and he goes through sort of what Methodism's um, various uh, traditions sort of hold for the the proletarianized Methodist um, who is sort of submitting themselves to labor, which at one point Thompson says no person could actually live like this, um, which I think is like very funny that he uh, inserts himself into the book at that point. Um, and yet people tried. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole discussion of the relationship between Methodism, work discipline, and and sexuality, which I think we should get back into. But um, I think the key to this you find on 372, um, since joy was associated with sin and guilt and pain, parentheses, Christ's wounds with goodness and love, so every impulse became twisted into the reverse. And it became natural to suppose that man or child only found grace in God's eyes when performing painful, laborious, or self-denying tasks. To labor and to sorrow was to find pleasure, and masochism was love. And then he says it is inconceivable that men could actually live like this. But many many Methodists did their best. Um, And this occurs in his larger discussion of the relationship between Methodism, work discipline, and, and sex, and sexuality. Um, do we want to say anything more about the kind of workplace version before we get into the sex stuff? Yeah, I mean, well, just on, so 369, he's he's describing um, more about this sensibility of Methodism, and he describes it as God was the most vigilant overlooker of all, um, which I thought was a pretty straightforward way to put it. Um, Even above the chimney breast, thou God seest me was hung. The Methodist was taught not only to bear his cross of poverty and humiliation, the crucifixion was, as Yuri saw, the very pattern of his obedience. True followers of our bleeding lamb, he's quoting here, now on thy daily cross we die. Work was the cross from which the transformed industrial worker hung. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> but then we can move on to um, what he's describing as Sabbath orgasms and the like. That's on the. That's right above where I was reading. Yeah, I mean, Thompson is sort of saying this thing um, that there's a, a, you know, this is a kind of classic, like uh, historians trying to do Freud kind of thing. Um, I could, we could talk about other examples of this, where when you're observing a kind of disciplinary and repressive process, which has psychological dimensions like this, uh, right? You then like you there's a kind of hydraulics to it where then like, okay, so where is the excess energy being let out? Um, And so Thompson is basically saying, it seems to me that uh, Methodism recruits workers, at least partly 
into this self-sacrificing ideology to work the machine is like to hang on the cross um to that you know there's a enormous stigma of the body um and of the sexuality of the body but uh then there's a kind of uh emotional outlet provided in the actual practice of religion right and that's what he means when he describes uh Sabbath orgasms of feeling. Yeah, so earlier on that page and at the bottom of 368, he describes these things. He says, At these love feasts, after hymns and the ceremonial breaking of cake or, or water biscuit, the preacher then spoke in a raw emotional manner of his spiritual experiences, temptations, and contests with sin. And he quotes, While the preacher is thus engaged, sighs, groans, devout aspirations, and ejaculations of prayer or praise are issuing from the audience in every direction. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to continue that same passage. In the tension which succeeded, individual members of the congregation then rose to their feet and made their intimate confessions of sin or temptation, often of a sexual implication. An observer noted, quote, the bashfulness and evident signs of inward agitation which some of the younger part of the females had betrayed just before they have risen to speak. Um, he calls this, uh, on 368, a ritualized form of psychic masturbation. He also, he describes, I think, Wesley as having been bizarrely sort of pr pruriently interested in young women's lives and actions, and that I think he describes Wesley's own marriage as punishment for the woman, um, in some way that again is just this sort of sadistic um, uh, <laughs> sense of sexuality. Uh, right, but so I mean, in this same area on three sixty eight, um, what must be stressed is the intermittent character of Wesleyan emotionalism. Nothing was more often remarked by contemporaries of the workday Methodist character or Methodist home life than its methodical, disciplined, and repressed disposition. It is a paradox of a, quote, religion of the heart, that it should be notorious for the inhibition of all spontaneity. Methodism sanctioned workings of the heart only upon the occasions of the church. Methodists wrote hymns, but no secular poetry of note. The idea of a passionate Methodist lover in these years is ludicrous. Avoid all manner of passions, advised Wesley. The word is unpleasant, but it is difficult not to see Methodism in these years a ritualized form of psychic masturbation. Energies and emotion, and this is, I think, where he makes the kind of social link, Energies and emotions which were dangerous to social order, or which were merely unproductive, in Dr. Yuri's sense, were released in the harmless form of sporadic love feasts, watch nights, and so on. Sorry for working backward, listeners, in the text here. but uh, And then on the next couple of pages um, is this kind of longer discussion of the the kind of sexual politics of Methodism. Um, Methodism is permeated, this is 370, Methodism is permeated with teaching as to the sinfulness of sexuality and as to the extreme sinfulness of the sexual organs. There, and especially the male, especially the male sexual organs, since it, it became increasingly the convention that women could not feel the lust of the flesh, were the visible fleshly citadels of Satan, the source of perpetual temptation and of countless highly unmethodical and unless for deliberate and godly pr procreation, unproductive impulses. Uh, but it can't, I think he really wants to emphasize this, right, that it can't 
totally carry out this repression and has to give it an outlet. So he says, the obsessional Methodist concern with sexuality reveals itself in the perverted eroticism of Methodist imagery. We have already noted in John Nelson's conversion the identification of Satan with the phallus. God is usually a simple father image, vengeful, authoritarian, and prohibitive, to whom Christ must intercede. The sacrificial lamb still bleeding and imploring grace for every soul of man, but the association of feminine or more frequently ambivalent sexual imagery with Christ is more perplexing and unpleasant. Here we are faced with layer upon layer of conflicting symbolism. Christ, the personification of love to whom the great bulk of Wesleyan hymns are addressed, is by turns maternal, Oedipal, sexual, and sadomasochistic. The extraordinary assimilation of wounds and sexual imagery in the Moravian tradition has often been noted. Man is a sinful worm, must find lodging, bed, and born in the lamb's wounds. But the sexual imagery is easily transferred to the imagery of the womb. The dearest little opening of the sacred, precious and thousand times beautiful little side, is also the refuge from sin in which the regenerate rests and breathes. Oh, precious side holds cavity. He's reading a hymn here. I want to spend my life in thee. There, in one side hole's joy divine, I'll spend all future days of mine. Yes, yes, I will forever sit there where thy side was split. I was really hoping you weren't going to read that one. <laughs> yeah, no, our listeners need to know. The side hole's <laughs> cavity has been haunting me since I read this passage. Yikes. <laughs> so, so he describes this sort of um, repression and then it gets, it's sort of an obsession at the same time as he describes later on in the chapter as this having similar sort of, um, there's a similar dynamic going on with politics in Methodism. He describes it as a politically conscious um, religion in that it's anti-radical and it's concerned with these ideas and combating them. And yet in the same way as it is with sex, the more you talk about it, the more people are aware of politics and the ideas that are being propagated elsewhere. And so he uses this to describe why it is that it's such a repressive religion could have leaders amongst it nonetheless in these rebellions. The people like um, Lovelace from uh, the Tolpuddle Martyrs, um, people who were Methodists and then broke away into radicalism. So I thought it was an interesting comparison. Yeah. Although it does seem like there's some change over time here, right? That um, it seems like he's saying by the by a couple of decades into the 19th century, that capacity in Methodism is kind of worn down some. Yeah, that's part of it. But he also is describing that even at its most repressive, its obsession with politics made it actually had this unintentional effect that brought some to the fore of political radicalism. Yeah. I mean, one, you know, I think... He wants to say that um, Methodism just socially plays a really important role for the working class. Um, and that's in part why it penetrates so deep also into working class life and gets inflected with politics in various ways. Um, you know, it, children are instructed. I mean, there's a whole really set of questions actually about why do working class people submit to and participate in this? Uh, and, you know, there's some just sort of oppressive and negative forms like on 377. He describes um, religious terrorism inflicted upon children, that's his phrase, uh, for, their for the moral rescue of the poor by the recruitment of their children. And he quotes a little girl um, who told a, a child labor commissioner, quote, if I died a good girl, I should go to heaven. If I were bad, I should have to be burned in brimstone and fire. They told me that at school yesterday. I did not know it before. But it also kind of offers a form of social integration on 379 and 380. He talks about um, 
you know, for a migrant worker, it's a way to kind of get entry into community. Um, it links you to other people, you know, socially and for mutual aid purposes and so on. Um, in the, on 380, he says, in the fluency of social life, plain common sense, compassion, the obstinate vitality of older commun community traditions all mingle to sof soften Methodism's forbidding outlines. Um, but the last reason that seems really important to him is what he calls the chiliasm of despair, the way Methodism intersects with the kind of political defeat of the working class. Right. I mean, he says on 381, Methodism may have inhibited revolution, but we can affirm with certainty that its rapid growth during the wars was a component of the psychic processes of counter-revolution. Um, so that's where he's getting to what you're saying. There's a sense in which any religion which places great emphasis on the afterlife is the chilism of the defeated and the hopeless. Yeah. Um, uh, let's say a word about Joanna Southcott. Cool lady. She was a cool lady. Yeah. I mean, she's another of these figures from the preface mm -hmm. who gets has to get redeemed from the condescension of posterity. She leads a cult of the poor. 100,000 followers. Um, and he says... Uh, we cannot dismiss the cult as a mere freak irrelevant to the stolid lines of social growth. On the contrary, we, sh we should see the Johannas and the Methodist revival of these years as intimate relations, as people are kind of looking for meaningful places to express the kind of emotional surplus generated by counter-revolution and defeat, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, he says that explicitly at one point. He's sort of tracing these graphs of like... Um, when religious revivals and political aspirations are going up and down, he says on 389, it's possible that religious revivalism took over just at the point where political or temporal aspirations met with defeat. Thus, we might almost offer a spiritual graph commencing with the far-reaching emotional disturbances associated with the French Revolution and rights of man. In the early 1790s, we find secular Jacobinism in the millenarian hopes of Richard Brothers, in the late 1790s and the 1800s, Methodist revivalism in the frenzy of the Johannas, which more than one contemporary witness saw as being part of the same stock and appealing to the same audience. In the aftermath of Luddism, 1811-12, a renewed wave of revivalism, giving way to the political revival of the winter of 1816 and 17. So that's exactly his point here, is that it's not so easily to... You can't trace one to the other as exactly overlapping in fact there's a more complex relation going on here yeah okay let's stop there all right what chapters are we reading next week Gib? so next week we'll be reading two chapters again chapter 12 community and chapter 13 radical westminster which takes us into part three and we will have the great historian uh feminist activist and friend of edward and dorothy thompson sheila robotham joining us so that will be very fun and exciting as always uh you know come talk on the slack with us all right talk to you all next week bye alex later gabe thanks for listening to casualties of history a podcast from jacobin magazine thanks to joey la neve de francesco for the music you can find us at blueberry.com that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y.com backslash j-a-c-o-b-i-n or at patreon.com backslash casualties of history 